Net Zero is in every sustainability conversation. Met with enthusiasm, then skepticism, the big question still missing a concrete answer is how? The scale of pledge and target setting is really exciting and really impressive, but the underlying theme to that is we also very quickly need to go from that to performance. Welcome to How to Net Zero, a podcast by Impact Verification Organization SustainCert, looking at net zero through the lens of those who work to make it happen. What interventions can deliver the most meaningful change? How do we account for greenhouse gas interventions in our supply chain if we're launching them? How can we accurately translate data from upstream interventions into downstream scope free reporting? In each episode, we explore implementation challenges with industry experts climate front runners, carbon gigs, and dive into promising approaches or innovation that can help overcome them. Hello and welcome to episode four of How to Net Zero. This is the last episode in our first series on navigating climate claims. Over the past three episodes, we've been discussing the ins and outs of corporate sustainability claim regulation asking lending experts exactly how do we make sure climate claims are credible. Put simply, how do we know if we can trust the claims being made by companies and brands and which claims are more trustworthy than others? Greenwashing is commonly defined as when a company puts more effort into marketing their sustainability efforts than they do actually actioning their sustainability efforts. It could be, for example, deferring attention from dirty business practices like fossil fuel extraction, It could be pumping up minimal efforts like a 5% reduction in plastic packaging by a global snack retailer. It could be dazzling the consumer with complicated terminology to make them believe that their new clothing is part of a clean and efficient circular system. Or it could just be flat out lying. And the problem is sustainability sells. Brands know that it's what consumers want and investors. And there's no coherent system to check that what they say is actually true. Indeed, Lucy, and we've seen attempts by the private sector and advertising industry associations to bring in regulations to solve for that. Earlier this year, there was a global guidance issued by the World Federation of Advisors on environmental claims. The problem, though, is that despite all of those initiatives, there's a continued lack of consistency and confusion over what can and cannot be said And so that shows that right now, the industry is completely unable to self-regulate. This is just not working. And it's worrying because with the failure of COP27 to achieve a meaningful commitment from countries to increase their mitigation targets, the role of the private sector remains very critical, more than ever. So what are the solutions? Today's episode is the fourth and final in this series on navigating climate claims. And looking back, there was a pretty clear consensus from all our guests until now that regulation is what's needed to address greenwashing and unlock credible climate action at the scale and pace needed. When we spoke to Ed Hanrahan of Climate Impact Partners, who's working with some of the world's largest corporations to deliver development-focused carbon reduction projects, he made it clear that regulation is needed to curb emissions and tackle greenwashing. He also made the interesting point that, yes, clearly greenwashing is a problem and no one is challenging that. He was, however, more concerned about the 65% of corporates that do not have any climate action plan whatsoever. 
And so that's why we need regulations to make sure that every corporate takes action and does it well. One of the questions we raised during this series was if we go heavy on regulating claims, will this put off companies from making commitments? And when we spoke with Gilles de France, policy officer at Carbon Market Watch, he didn't seem to think so. Yes, and I would say this is debatable, really. Whilst it's difficult to know whether claims regulations will put off companies making a commitment, what's clear is the current atmosphere, i.e. lack of clear regulations and intense scrutiny from civil society, that creates a context that doesn't incentivize transparent communications from corporates taking action. I was really interested to read a, a recent study published by SARS-Pol. They looked at 1,200 companies with some form of sustainability or CSR commitment. And the study showed that one in four doesn't actually plan to talk about their sustainability targets or results. So that new trend is, is worrying because we need companies to be recognized and rewarded for taking action. It's called greenwashing, this new trend. And surely this has something to do with the growing scrutiny and increasing greenwashing accusations. I would agree with Carbon Market Watch that we must crack down on climate claims now. And I would say that most importantly is we need climate regulations. Not only claims regulations, climate action needs to become mandatory globally. And that means requiring companies to reduce all emissions, including scope three emissions, and explain why some emissions remain unabatable and disclose every year on where they are against their reduction targets. This requires regulations as we can't expect civil society to play the regulatory role much longer. It simply does not drive the type of commitment and speed we need. I would definitely agree with that. Green hushing, I hadn't heard that term before. When we spoke to Alberto, he warned that without proper regulations, we will continue to see a rise in lawsuits by civil society organizations, like the one which we're witnessing recently with KLM in the Netherlands, claiming that they're making flying more sustainable because they're using carbon offsets. So let's turn to our guest this week, Marty McBrien. Director of Strategic Affairs at the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, or IFRS Foundation, who we will be speaking to about navigating climate claims from a standard-setting and regulatory body perspective. In this episode, we'll be asking, what does net zero look like from a regulator's point of view? How is regulation changing corporate business models, and how are they reacting to it? We will explore the ins and outs of climate disclosure standards and the corporate world's response. We're here with Marty McBrien, Director of Strategic Affairs at the IFRS Foundation, who's playing an active role in setting up the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board. The ISSB works towards the implementation of climate-related standards globally and recently confirmed Scope 3 disclosures would be required in their standard. Originally a forester, environmental scientist, and agricultural economist, Marty has played a leading role in driving the integration of climate and environmental information into corporate reporting with the same rigor as financial information globally. So Mardi, it's an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much uh, for making the time. You're such an inspiration. I admire your energy and commitment to drive harmonization of climate and environmental corporate reporting for over a decade. It's been really amazing to follow your journey 
and see how much progress you and the ISSB have been making over the last few months or close to 12 months towards climate-related standards implementation globally. So to provide some context, I wanted to take a few minutes to reflect on what we've learned from financial reporting over the last 50 years. So the organization you work for, the IFRS Foundation, has been instrumental in driving harmonization in financial reporting globally, right? I believe that today there's 167 jurisdictions, if I can count correctly, and that's about every country on earth except the US and a couple others that have adopted these financial reporting standards. So, Mardi, can you tell us why is this so important for our economy? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Mary. And I'm equally a big fan of your work that you've been doing over all these years. It's standard setting and bring this stuff into the norm. It's, it's not a job for the faint-hearted. So uh, we all have to stick together, don't we, in this in this endeavour? But I, I mean, I think the thing is, and the reason why we've all been stuck at it for these years, is we really understand that we need to make sure stakeholders, where in our case they're businesses from different countries around the world, speak the same language, right? So the same accounting language, it's the same sustainability language. That, that's why we believe in the standard setting process and the approach of setting out structures and, and why we've worked at it. And, and standards help bring trust and transparency, enhancing the quality of and comparability of international information. So where, And that could be financial information or climate or sustainability information. And what that does, that trust and transparency enables investors and other market participants, other stakeholders, to make informed decisions about how to allocate capital, how to engage with that business. And for companies in particular, it can help also lower the transaction costs and improve international investments. And, and from a sustainability perspective, it also helps preparers know where to start, know what they need to do and, and put that sort of structure and boundary in place. So all very, all very, very important reasons for the need for standardization. Thanks, Mardi. So, so basically, if I'm hearing you correctly, we need those standards to establish trust and transparency to make sure that financial decisions are, are well informed. So to what extent does that apply to carbon accounting and climate reporting as well? Uh, and would you, would you say that harmonization and standard setting is as important in carbon reporting as it is for, for financial reporting? I think the most important thing when we set out to do all of these is making sure that we have the same definitions the same approaches, they're clear and transparent, the methodology, so people can make decisions, whether that be allocate capital or invest in or buy or sell or even you know engage with them as a st everyday stakeholder or as an employee, right? You want to understand that, that those all, all stack up and make sense. And I think it really is important that, you know, someone asked me a little while ago when we were back at CDSB, like, what lessons did we learn? And it's just alignment of terminology, alignment of methodology, anything these simple things, which seem at the time as you write them, you go, oh, that makes sense. But actually making sure they're exactly the same. A line's great, but that still might mean people have to do more, right? To take further action. So using the same word in the same place where you can get it is, is, is a real lesson. But I think for carbon accounting, you know, we, where this will become, you know, where we're going to see the really big action is where it starts to hit balance sheets, where we start to be taking this where money money's involved, where we start to see money move. And we need the we need carbon accounting to be treated that seriously, appear on balance sheets and, and be treated that way. So in order for that to happen, we need to put as much rigor around that process and transparency and comparability and consistency as possible. So it's, I think it's absolutely as important that we get that right for carbon accounting as we do for financial reporting. Because as I said, it's going to feed the balance sheet and that information needs to be as robust as possible. You know, remember we've got to think about you know the audience for these at the end of the day 
is is the board, the chairman and the investors, right? If they're going to get signed off at the top of the business, go through audit risk, you know, we need to make sure you know, that you know, the internal controls are right, the, right, the structures are right, the verification around it's right. We need the whole package to ensure that information is robust as possible. And sorry, I've really talked ages on that, but I, I, I truly believe that getting these things right at the beginning will pay off in spades to help accelerate the adoption globally. And do you would you say that this this is exactly because we don't have uh, those things clearly defined yet? We don't have consensus on those definitions at the granular level. That this is one of the root cause of of the greenwashing sort of scrutiny and greenwashing accusations that we're we're seeing uh, today. Yeah, I think so as well. And I also think we're in a we're quite a tricky period, right? Because we went through, Marianne, you and I have been doing this for years. We went through a period where no one cared about this, right? You and I were banging, knocking on the doors. And they were saying, go away, go away, come back. We, this is not important. We don't understand this. And so we've started to see a real acceleration in the last few years of interest in this space. Whereas before we could work through things, not necessarily together, but you know, you know, on the side and actually work to get it right and test it. Now, this agenda, glad, you know, after many years, you know, I'm not saying it's not great, but it's exploded, which means we've got lots and lots of activity all at once. And people are just trying to work it out too. We've also got a situation that we're seeing the real shift from sustainability, carbon, climate from a sustainability department or compliance compartment into mainstream across the boards, the risk management, for CFO department. People have different understandings of some of this information. And and sustainability is often typically sat in comms marketing as opposed to right in the center of the heart of where that sort of rigor and evidence-based sort of storytelling is really happening. And I think the the challenge now is we've still got people that want to tell that great story, but sometimes telling it with too much uh, flair, if you like. And that does lead to, to greenwashing as well. And, I, you know, some of it's deliberate, some of it's not deliberate. And I think we just have to make sure everyone truly understands why we're reporting, right? Because of telling that story, that, that story about corporate position and performance and the work that's already done in a way that's robust and rigorous and comparable, as opposed to selling the company in a, in a different way to different stakeholders. So I think we just have to be really careful on where we're telling it and how we're telling it. Yeah. So we have the solution, Mardi. How do we implement it at the speed required? Because clearly we don't have 50 years like it took for the financial reporting sector to harmonize. We don't have 50 years to get it right for carbon reporting. So how do we do that quickly? I think the thing is, the good thing is, like what I've already said, we've got 10, 12, 15 years of reporting already, right? We have a large number of companies and governments around the world already starting to mandate things like TCFD the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Recommendations, and they're very, very similar to what our standards are on climate. So our S2 standard is on climate, and that will come out uh, by the end of Q2 in 2023. And we already have governments around the world preparing to bring this in. So we've got the TCFD already in regulation, and we're starting to see governments and uh, regulatory bodies around the world think about how to bring this in. I think where we're at now that we weren't at over the last 10 and 15 years is an understanding of climate resilience across markets, across business, across investors. You know, this is built in already. The thinking so it's recognized that climate is a financially material risk. Sustainability issues, whether that be people-based or wider environmental, are financially material issues. And they need to be considered as such when people are allocating capital and and deciding if, you know, the auditors are saying if they're a going concern. So we are really in a place where I think Although we've got a lot to do in terms of infrastructure, I think standards will go a long way in moving the bar. 
and, and you know that's imminent if you like and then they'll come into force within the years after that we have a huge amount of market practice and so as long as you know tcfd keeps signaling the direction of travel governments are mandating it right so i you know we've got that that comparability. We've even got the US that's basing their climate standard off the TCFD recommendations. So very, very similar to ours. If we can keep that global comparability going and keep our foot on the accelerator, then I think for climate, we have a pretty good global standard in place that everyone can be starting to report against, you know, within two years and move forward faster. But we do have TCFD. So I'd say do not stop that. Keep going with that at pace understanding that will be the foundation of, of the future global system. The work you're doing is fascinating, Mardi, and um, especially because it relates to one of the social tipping points that was identified as a key lever to drive irreversible and unstoppable climate action. So the same way that we have biological tipping points that can trigger irreversible climate change, we have social tipping points, which are measures that we can take as a global society to, to put a, a break on climate change and climate reporting is one of them. Uh, so it's really amazing to see you and, and the entire team at the IFRS Foundation work so hard to make it happen. So from what you just said, we're a couple of years away from having a globally relevant carbon accounting standard. How do we make sure we have enough critical mass of companies using it to reach this uh, social tipping point in just a few years? What can convince CEOs and board of those leading uh, multinational companies to embrace those standards? I think they'll be mandatory. And I think that's the difference. Whereas accounting standards are mandatory, these standards will be mandatory. It's not an opt-in or an opt-out. If these issues would be perceived to be financially material, then you need to do it. And, and I think more and more, the cost of carbon, carbon accounting, is going to be expected to be seen, even if that is just from a, how you're managing your your own impact, how you're going to, you know, what, what's your, your plan for offsetting carbon? It's, it, that is going to, you know, it's going to be a standing question and how much are you setting aside, you know, what are you setting aside? What's your plan? What's your strategy? I don't think you'll be able to get away without having that question asked of you. It's amazing. Yeah. I think it's just going to have to be a standard question. Like we are thinking about the IFRS Foundation and we're a public interest entity. It's like, how do we make sure that we also walk the talk and fit, fit for the future? And every board room will be having, you know, even if it's just as they go down their line items, they're looking at, you know, what are we setting aside this year to cover our impact, if you like? You know, and I think that's going to be a, a more frequently arising. But the mandatory nature, you know, and I think where the IFRS Foundation have done very well is getting that sort of global adoption of accounting standards. You're a trusted brand. They're extremely rigorous. You know, the standard setting process is nothing like I've ever seen in the voluntary standard setting space that I was in before. You know, it's extremely rigorous that, you know, it's all debated publicly. Everyone can get involved in it. And I think the trust that that brings to the standards when they come out, I think, is amazing. And if you just look across the world now, how we're starting to see regulatory bodies think about how they bring us in. If anyone's looking for a job, the Canadians are currently advertising for chair of their, their board to bring this in. So most jurisdictions around the world have a facility to bring in IFRS standards so they can check, check them and bring them through and have independent oversight. Those bodies are being set up everywhere. So Canada's advertising, Korea's got theirs in place. Hong Kong's working on it. Singapore, Singapore last week. We've had other African jurisdictions say, we're going to adopt, you know, before the standards are even out, the momentum of people getting organized and thinking, you know, if you look to Australia, they're doing the same thing, thinking about how they're going to bring these in, you know, publicly as well. We're starting, because of the familiarity of how to bring in IFRS standards, people are a bit more comfortable with understanding what it means, where they fit, how their oversight plays out, etc. And I think that will also help 
where we didn't have this for climate and other environmental and social issues in the past. They sort of came into different pieces of government regulation in sort of a bit of a piecemeal fashion. This will all come in connected in one place and most importantly, be connected to the financial statements. So this, these aren't standalone standards, sustainability standards or climate standards that are supposed to just sit on the side and appear in a different report. These at the very least need to be connected to your financial information and published at the same time, at the very least. So embedded. So it's quite an exciting change to what we're seeing of years and years of these standalone reports that get published up to six months, 12 months later that do not connect and tell different stories. So again, it just puts more importance around the rigor controls and the certainty that's needed in carbon accounting to be able to inform this process. It's amazing, Mardi, and frankly, we should talk more about that. What I heard is that you're comfortable, the IFIS Foundation is comfortable that the 167 or so jurisdictions that are using your standards for financial accounting are very likely to use your standards for climate reporting and that they are already engaging, already signaling before the standards are out already signaling and getting ready to adopt those standards. It's amazing. That could really be the tipping point, the social tipping point we're looking for. I have to say, it's a sigh of relief that you're so confident that regulation and that, that these will be mandatory. I think after COP27 and, and my generation, you know, hearing from people on the front lines, oh, it was just a, you know, an oil and gas trade show. <laughs> you know, many of us are concerned that as the urgency to take action is ramping up, that people are slipping on standards. So it's just so heartening to hear that you think that this is around the corner. Well, actually, I have a different version of COP27 because I actually <laughs> think lots of the sustainable finance bits of that puzzle st are starting to come together. There's all those little cogs that have to turn the right way, right? Because this isn't just one cog. This is reporting. This is the end of the game, right? But there's lots of cogs in that system that have to come together. And I actually really felt, I mean, I... I'm very disheartened about the whole, you know, the whole bigger picture. But actually, the sustainable finance cogs are all slowly starting to come into line. And that I found heartening out of COP, actually. You know, we're seeing much more on transition plans. We're seeing lots more talk around markets, the role of markets. We're seeing, you know, we, we have our standards that are sort of popping out. We've got you know, even CDP's call that they're going to align with the ISSB standards, meaning 20,000 companies. As, as the ISSB climate standard in 2024, meaning 20,000 companies plus globally will be collecting a data set ready to report in line with our standards before the standards actually become effective. Like that's massive for moving the sustainable finance space. We also had quite, there was quite a lot of other, GFANS had quite a few, incre you know, these incremental things, when they all actually stack up, make a massive can make a massive difference. So, you know, amongst all the other sort of doom and gloom, I was quite happy that we weren't releasing lots of reports in this space, but lots of action-focused announcements that can actually, if they all play out and we keep them in, you know, on the accelerator behind the scenes, these things will have a big difference, I think. Thank you for that. I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate there, but um, it's really good to hear another perspective. <laughs> I'm also glad I'm right? Because, I mean, I came out of COP23 and I'm thinking, goodness, that's another COP I've been to. And I, when I took the IFRS Foundation in, because this isn't their normal sort of territory, if you like, you know, I was very much, I'm not going anywhere with anything that doesn't speak to implementation or action, because that's the theme of this COP. We actually talked about digital reporting, so XBRL, digital reporting, you know, how we start to make sure these standards are digitized from the beginning. We talked about really practical how we make this real, like how we get this information much more accessible, you know, that that speaks very closely to getting, you know, the 
carbon accounting, standardized, accessible, you know, calling out greenwash really, you know, that there was lots of good bits there. And and I think if we all go into COP28, knowing that we we're going to be in, in the Middle East, knowing that we're probably not going to get away from the oil and gas lobby, but all stick very true to action focused, moving the dial, aligning with others to, you know, make good stuff happen, then in the absence of potentially another, you know, we're not going to get most likely another big deal. Money's hard to move in a in the climate that we're in. You know, I think these incremental actions that will help move private finance to the global south have a really important role to play and we should all continue to work together in that direction. Yeah, thanks for those uh, indeed optimistic perspective, um, Mardi. And, and it's interesting to hear that perhaps what's most interesting at COP is what happens outside the formal negotiations process. So that also gives a lot of momentum for, for climate action uh, more generally. So, so back to the topic of climate disclosure, Mardi, we were concerned at some point that COP3 reporting would not be included. Uh, in your standards, and that's a topic we spend a lot of energy on at SustainSet because it just represents 40% of global emissions, and in the vast majority of our client circumstances, it's 80 to 90% of their own emissions. So those emissions, which are indirect emissions, either emissions from suppliers or emissions from consumers, uh, are usually left out of the big commitments on climate. So what made you and the ISSB decide to include scope three disclosures in the standard? What was the, the reasoning for that? And uh, was there a strong pushback from the corporate side? So, so I'll just clarify, I'm not an ISSB board member. And so I don't deliberate on the standards, but I do get the readouts like everyone else. And, and for those that don't know, ISSB board members, the meetings are monthly, they're in public. So you can listen in and see the agendas in advance. And when they do talk about scope three, if that's something you're interested in, you can actually listen in live to the debate as well as they publish a podcast and summary at the end of the week. So you can get this yourself just so you know, I'm not like, this is not information that's you know private at all. You can, you can access it freely available online, but the scope three, I think is quite an important, like you said, it's a large part of the supply chain and it's also important information for markets to know about when they're moving capital. And so when the board made that decision, uh, they're also, you know, still have more work to do on that decision. Let's just say they're talking about safe harbors, to allow people to, you know, it's often estimating. We don't have all, you know, we don't have all the data yet. So there'll be estimations required and there'll be sort of a, um, they're sort of talking about time, you know, time lag or a proportionality and scalability of requirements of scope three. So they want to say it's in, but just it may be that we allow longer for that to be brought in or jurisdictions to allow a longer signaling that it will come in, but allow companies time to get that information in the way that they need to have it to be able to report it in line with their financial information so they're not not dismissing it and and i think the this is said best by john paul surveys who is the chair of iosco and he's just come in but he says you know we need everyone to leave the station at the same time with adoption of these standards but they might all just arrive at their destination at slightly different ones depending on the size of the company the, the maturity of the jurisdiction etc and i think that's a really good way to look at scope three is, is we do need everyone to get started now but when this becomes mandatory in their jurisdiction, maybe a few years away, I think the other important point to remember with our standards is it's scope three where it's financially material as well. So it's not everything in your entire supply chain. You know, you don't always have to be, you know, you need to know what it is, right? You need to understand that to be able to assess if it's financially material, but you don't need to put it in your annual report and accounts if it's not financially material. So if you're still collecting it, but you don't think this is going to have an impact on your bottom line, you can report it elsewhere and link to it, for example. 
just say we're working on it, you know? And I think honesty is a big part of this, Marianne, as well. As she's saying, look, we just don't know yet and we're working on it. Rather than try to make it up and, and greenwash and not quite get it right, just lay out your roadmap and be very clear where you're at on that journey um, and be open to, open to a conversation about it, not try and hide it. So, Mardi, what were the reactions from corporates or from the financial sector? How did those uh, stakeholders react uh, when you started working on those climate uh, disclosure standards and when Scope 3 became uh, more certain that it would be included? What, what type of reactions did you get from the market? So when in the consultation, it was really mixed. It was some saying absolutely no way and some saying absolutely need to do it. And they were mixed across all stakeholders as well, which I think does make this quite hard to, you know, for the board then to have to you know, consider all of those perspectives and come up with an answer. We're also working hard with jurisdictions because remember we're adopted by companies, countries, sorry, such and the US and Europe as well, as well as other jurisdictions. And we also wanted to see what else was playing out globally and make sure that we took that into consideration when when the board was deliberating and, and they had many discussions obviously with, we have a jurisdictional working group which talks about these topics with the board and, and directly speaks to the chair and vice chair and some of the leadership team at the foundation to, to make sure that as we're considering these topics we're considering the regulatory environment that they're going to land in as well so really important pieces here but there was not one person that, you know, there was not one group that just said no or yes. It was really mixed. It was really very, we did get 1,400 responses, remember. So that's a significant amount to to, to go through. And it, I don't, you know, it wasn't an easy decision to make sure Scope 3 landed in. I think they, they really worked hard to make sure that they understood the real issues from preparers and collecting this information, but didn't shy away from the challenge of saying they're in. And you know, I was I personally was also delighted to hear that final outcome be made. It's very and I think the board should be congratulated for being so ambitious. But now it's what other pieces of architecture do they need to put in place? Like I said earlier, the safe harbor and other sort of, you know, scalability challenges to, to support the market in, in getting to that, you know, complete picture. Yeah, and those flexibility mechanisms are important, I agree, to give corporates time to, uh, to adapt and, uh, and be ready to implement the new, the new regulation. And at the same time, for us, it was really important that Scope 3 was in because there can't really be credible climate action without Scope 3 action. Uh, and so that's a, a key part of the puzzle. My final question to you, Madi, is a bit more personal. You're such a, an inspiration for other women and myself. As I was saying at the beginning, you've been at the forefront of a climate disclosure for over a decade. Before joining the IFI's foundation, you were the managing director of the Climate Disclosure Standards Board. And on top of that, you have a family. So it's, it's an amazing inspiration, Mardi. What would you say to women listening to us today who may wonder if they can do it too? What would you respond to anyone? And I'm sure there's many people asking you, how do you do this, Mardi? <laughs> a lot of coffee. I think that the mm -hmm. truth is, and you're very, kind, you're very, very kind to say that because Marion, I, I, I equally look to you. And, and I'd say I surround myself with fabulous people people that have a can-do, we can solve this problem kind of challenge. And if you surround yourself with fabulous people and, and you can always learn something from every conversation, I mean, this is such a fantastic field to work in. And incrementally on a day-by-day -day basis, you know, you might not feel you're getting somewhere, but if you look back, you can, that energy you get from and seeing the change we can actually have for our young families and the future, it is quite it gets me out of bed. It keeps me going. But it's the people. I think, you know, in every job, you've got great people and, 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 and not so, you know, not those that really don't really want to get behind the issue or the cause. Or, and I think 
finding those great people, surrounding yourself with them and, and jumping in and going for the ride. It's, uh, it, it does really help accelerate where you want to get to. And, and, you know, life's life short, so have fun while you're doing it. I think remaining like the fun bit, you know, at times when like Lucy mentioned earlier, when we're walking out of COP, we're all thinking, where were we at? You know, it's, it's trying to think about what incrementally, you know, every conversation, can I do something that's going to help move, move the dial, move the bar just that little bit further in the right direction. And like I said, lots of coffee and uh, a sense of humor <laughs> and, and, and building just up your own personal resilience, you know. You know, life has its ups and downs and just making sure that you stay true to you and what you truly believe in and, and the purpose that you, you know, you set out to achieve, whatever that is, it, you know, it all, it all helps. Marty, um, if I may indulge on the back of that question, as a, a woman in sustainability, there's obviously a lot of conversations around intersectional leadership. And I, I guess I just wanted to, to ask if I could, if you feel like more feminine values and leadership, you know, are necessary to transition us and and maybe you know what does that look like and do you see enough of it i think we're seeing i think in sustainability we've traditionally had more women in general i think maybe if i could say the men are catching on this is now quite a cool area and we're seeing more men come in but i think in terms of shaping the future we need a balance of everyone young old male female backgrounds experience because i think like you said this is a challenge for all of us and i think all of us bring something different to the challenge and and the opportunity that potentially we can create from it and i think it's a really important point that we're all at the table you know all we're, everyone's represented everyone feels that their voice can be heard in in this next phase this transition because there won't be you know there won't be all of us but but i think you know from a cop perspective going to cop we're not seeing enough female leaders there for example we're not seeing enough female decision makers at the table in some some of these big conversations and we do bring a slightly different perspective or a different approach or a different different sets of backgrounds and skills and i think it's making sure that we we get a balance when we we, we all come to the table or we all sit there no matter what the challenge is because i think like i said we've all got something we've all got a bit right we've got a bit of that puzzle regardless of our backgrounds and uh, we need all the pieces love that thank you so much for sharing marty thank you so much for your time marty Enjoy your, your year-end break, well-deserved uh, year-end break, and looking forward to, uh, to following what IS, ISSB and the IFRS foundations will be doing next year to continue to accelerate uh, the implementation of uh, climate disclosure globally. Thank you so much for making the time, Mardi. It's a pleasure, and you guys keep up the fantastic work. In this series, we've been clarifying the confusion, myths, and controversies around different types of climate claims finding out why they're so often misused and what the proposed solutions are. We've spoken to experts in the field and heard that greenwashing is a big issue. We need to focus our efforts on both mobilizing companies to put together solid climate plans and put them into action so that climate claims are meaningful. We heard that regulation on climate claims might not be every company's cup of tea, but we urgently need it to stop greenwashing and galvanize companies to take action. We also heard that without proper regulations, we'll see a rise in lawsuits by civil society organizations, like the one we saw recently with KLM in the Netherlands. This is money and time wasted when it could be put into actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And finally, we heard in this episode from Mardi McBrien, the really positive momentum around climate disclosure standards globally and the expectation that within the next two to three years, those standards will be available globally and most importantly, mandated by regulators. 
This means that we're on the verge of a tipping point where climate disclosures become mandatory globally and is held to the same level of rigor as financial accounting. I have really learned a lot uh, in this series on navigating climate claims. So thank you, Marion and SustainCert, for having me co-host this podcast with you. And I look forward to season two. So where are we going next? In season two of How to Net Zero, we'll be speaking to the people running successful, impactful carbon projects on the ground, from mangrove forests to cook stoves to new energy sources and beyond. We'll hear from them directly and explore the projects behind climate claims, looking at how, with the right verification, they are making net zero a reality. See you in the next season in 2023. That concludes this month's episode of How to Net Zero. To learn more about this episode and our guest today, visit sustaincert.com, How to Net Zero. Our podcast is 100% listener driven, so please help more people discover this by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform.